There is a difference between being aware of an issue and being compelled by it. For those of us not in high-risk demographics, the COVID-19 pandemic has put us in a situation where we have to make personal sacrifices for the safety of others. When the choice to be inconvenienced for the sake of someone else is in our hands, though, the decision is not easy. The modern world exists at the intersection of a myriad of issues that affect people unequally. We are forced to ask a question central to our function as a society. Am I willing to change my behavior for someone else? I'm Izzy Amoruso. I'm Edward Sturm. And this is Duality. Every week we bring you two stories and a conversation about them. This week on Duality, For the Common Good. The climate crisis and the COVID-19 pandemic are strikingly similar in their requirement for collective action. But the calculus of how we react is always different. As everything around us seems to be going terribly wrong, this moment must become a reckoning. To move forward, we have to become more willing to disrupt our lives for others. So at dinner last night, I was talking to my parents, and we started having a conversation about how quickly COVID cases have been rising in the U.S. over the past few weeks. And I knew that they'd been going up, especially in the states that had had early reopenings, but I wasn't aware of just how drastic the spike in cases has been. So after that conversation, I started doing my own research on what's been happening recently with COVID-19. And I learned that on June 26th, we had close to 45,000 new cases in the U.S., There were so many significant developments that I was completely unaware of, including Alabama, Florida, Montana, North Carolina, and Oklahoma reporting seven-day coronavirus average highs, a 21-day streak of national case highs, more Republican leaders advocating for the use of face masks in public, which now has shifted to being a partisan issue rather than one of public health, and the fact that our president has continually refused to wear a face mask, which is setting a terrible example. After that, I started scrolling through my Snapchat, and what was shocking to me was that two weeks ago, I could go through my friend's Snapchat stories, and everyone was self-isolating. Lots of people weren't happy about it, but there was a sort of collective sadness. We were all sad together and experiencing the same thing. Now, since states are reopening, people are starting to relax in terms of quarantine regulations and go back to normal. And almost every Snapchat story I saw was my friends together or or hanging out with other people without masks and and definitely not six feet apart. Personally, when the virus first came into the U.S., I was terrified. And the conversations I was seeing on my social media feeds were almost entirely about staying in quarantine and maintaining social distancing. I actually started keeping a journal to track the number of COVID cases in the U.S. and in California and the increase by age demographic. Really? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it helped me feel more in control and more informed about this crazy, uncertain situation. But that narrative is a lot less prominent, even though the issue itself isn't. And, And in fact, it's getting worse. One of the reasons for this is because so much national attention has been focused on the Black Lives Matter movement. Naturally, that is a major focus, as it, as it should be. The impact of that focus in the media I've been consuming, however, is that COVID seems to be looming less large. Talking about Black Lives Matter and COVID are not mutually exclusive. In fact, racial disparities in healthcare are exacerbated by COVID, but 
we've gotten to a place where we're not giving the pandemic the necessary attention. Initially, there was this idea that summer would have fewer cases circulating, especially in Gen Z, which made it feel like there was some sort of light at the end of the tunnel and that we would be able to transition back to a some sense of normalcy. But now we're seeing spikes in California, Texas, and Florida, so the weather really isn't as impactful as, as maybe we hoped it would be. Doing research on this honestly felt like a wake-up call. I'm not in an at-risk population, and neither are my friends, but the way we've handled the reopening of our states is way too relaxed, and I stopped thinking critically about the impact that my actions have on the well-being of others. Since California reopened, I've seen people outside my immediate family, and I've gone into different establishments that were most definitely not enforcing social distancing restrictions. And I felt that it was acceptable because other people were doing the same thing, and we've been instructed by our state government that it's okay to do so. There was both social and governmental permission to be more lenient with restrictions. I was continuing to wash my hands a lot, bring Purell with me, and, and wear a mask whenever I left my house, but I was definitely more relaxed about the restrictions than I was when the virus first entered the U.S. And the big question that all of these thoughts led me to was, am I willing to change my behavior for the benefit of others? As I said before, I'm not in an at-risk group for COVID-19, but if I were to transmit that disease to my parents or, or to anyone in an older generation, they would be at risk, and it would be a direct consequence of my actions. And my answer to that is, is yes, I am absolutely going to change how I act moving forward. But the larger question is, is not only applicable in terms of COVID, but also in terms of other social issues. Yeah, the question of, of are you willing to change your behavior for someone else is at the heart of a lot, a lot of different issues, as you mentioned. When you were sharing this with me the first time, I thought immediately of the climate crisis. And this is another kind of thing where we need a wake-up call. You pointed out how the pandemic is an example of a struggle to remain persistent on an issue that doesn't seem like it affects us, at least not right now. The same thing has been happening with climate change for years. There is a consensus among scientists internationally that warming caused by global emissions poses an existential threat to our planet. Rising sea levels and natural disasters driven by climate change are already having profound impacts, particularly on the most vulnerable global communities. And, you know, just as you mentioned the connection between systemic inequality in healthcare and COVID-19, climate change is clearly connected to global inequality. So I, I wanted to talk about this a little bit more, because we often view this issue of climate change as a responsibility that we need to take for our posterity, you know, so that our, our grandchildren can live on the planet. And that, that is true. That is a, a real element of this. But it ignores what's happening right now. The UN uh, World Economic and Social Survey uh, presented a lot of information on these inequities. Uh, so the global poor are much more likely to live in floodplains because areas that are prone to flooding are going to be uh, less desirable and less, therefore less expensive. So sea level rising has a much larger impact on people in that position. The same is true with areas that are prone to mudslides and very arid regions that are going to suffer more from droughts and extreme heat. 
inequality might even have a greater impact on the response to climate-driven national disasters. And Hurricane Katrina is a great example of this, wherein majority Black and poor neighborhoods uh, in the Ninth Ward, for example, had a much more difficult time recovering than other parts of the city because those people didn't have the same disposable income and resources to recover from the same kind of damage. This moment right now really needs to be a reckoning globally. It seems like that's hard to do because we're facing a pandemic that is demanding so much of our attention, but in actuality, this is the most prudent time to act. There's been rhetoric about how good shutdowns have been for the environment, and you know, there was that it's fake. It is not true. But the the, uh, the dolphins swimming in the um, Venice Canal, yeah, that's fake. But th- there there are other things, you know, sim- similar that that are are in actuality and in emissions globally have been down. But this can end up being a, a pyrrhic victory. During the 2008 recession, emissions did go down a little bit because the entire economy slowed down. But the spending that took place to stimulate the economy brought emissions to a place that was worse than they had ever been prior to the recession. So governmental policy in that instance further entrenched a system that is destroying our planet. And we have to act differently in this moment. So in the UK, there's this initiative to uh, build back better. And that's really important. Uh, There was an article in The Economist titled, Countries Should Seize the Moment to Flatten the Climate Curve. And it proposed using economic stimulation efforts in response to the pandemic as a way to incentivize green action. Uh, And the BBC reporting on the the Build Back Better initiative uh, pointed to some similar things, like like the conditional bailout of the airplane industry or uh, carbon pricing or whatever it may be. So if governments see the economic impact of the coronavirus and decide it's time to put climate change on the back burner, they're throwing away an essential opportunity and we're all in real trouble. With global warming, especially in privileged communities, making changes now will make an impact years down the line. By not changing your actions now, you may not feel the consequences of your actions until much later. But with COVID, if you were to ignore regulations and infect your family, the impact you're having is immediate and direct. There's something to be said about the time frame in which your actions will have an impact. That, that is an interesting point um, and, and a key difference between the two things. E- even though the immediate nature of a pandemic might make us more reactionary than we are to climate change, your whole story is still based on the fact that people aren't acting with the seriousness that they should be, though. Um, so, so the other piece of time frame is how long we expect a disruption of normality to take place. We're much more willing to uh, change our behavior for the sake of somebody else if that change isn't going to be be um, a long-standing fixture in our lives. In April, people were happy to stay inside and focus on the virus, but it was with that expectation that, you know, we'd be returning to normalcy sometime come summer. Uh, but now here we are in June, and the situation really hasn't categorically changed. In fact, as you were saying, it's, it's kind of gotten worse. But public and governmental opinion about what is acceptable has changed in the other direction. You're exactly right. There's so much uncertainty as to when we will be able to safely remove the restrictions we have in place right now. Yeah. Uh, Another thing that has a big impact on the calculus of of, of changing your behavior, like we've been talking about, is the perceived impact of that change. 
to me, this is on display when we talk about like whether or not we should eat at Chick-fil-A, given that the Chick-fil-A Foundation has made several donations to groups that have anti-LGBT policies. It's a struggle because I know that if I go eat at Chick-fil-A, Dan Cathy is going to donate to these groups. But if I don't go eat at Chick-fil-A, Dan Cathy is still going to donate to those groups. It doesn't feel like my actions have a real impact. Now, intellectually, I know that that thinking is, is fallacious, because acting with a collective consciousness is the only way that our society can really advance. That kind of thinking is, is incredibly dangerous and quickly becomes nihilistic. But emotionally, you know, when I'm hungry, that, that takes precedent over what feels like an action that has an incredibly small and indirect impact. That's the same mentality people have when they justify not voting. But if everyone's thought processes, my one vote won't make an impact, then we end up seeing an extremely large impact. And I'm going to use this as an opportunity to say that if you aren't registered to vote and you are able to, please go register. Also, the idea of impact comes up when you're advocating for a cause that you feel like your individual actions can't solve, similar to what you were describing with Chick-fil-A. So, for example, if you were to donate to a cause that provides water to communities without those resources, you could do that for the rest of your life, and there would still be people who die from dehydration in those communities. One person can't take on the problems of the world. But that doesn't mean your actions don't have an impact just because you can't individually be the solution. COVID-19 is an example of, of widespread diffusion of responsibility, just as we talked about with the bystander effect. Because the response to the pandemic relies on all of us, we're much less likely to think critically about what our individual actions should be. That's true. But there's also a direct personal impact stemming from our actions in terms of COVID that isn't as apparent when we look at climate change. You know, if you go out to a party and you come back and infect your parents who are in, in a more vulnerable demographic, you feel a, a personal responsibility for that. But, you know, decades down the road when our climate has worsened, the responsibility is not going to be placed on any single person. Like, I don't hold that same level of accountability. So we, we talked about timeframes and perceived impacts as things we consider when asking the question of, of when we should change our behavior for others. Uh, but the last element that I think that we should talk about is our, our personal relationships. I, I mentioned the feelings that go along with endangering your parents, per se. Those same kinds of feelings don't necessarily exist for endangering your neighbors, and those kind of feelings don't exist for your fellow citizens in your country, and those feelings don't extend to everyone in the world. So when we were discussing this podcast yesterday, you asked the question of when is it socially acceptable to not change your behavior to save someone else? And you know, my first response was, well, any time that, that that person lives outside of the United States. That's... Uh, an issue that is kind of for a different day in the sense of why is it that Americans don't prioritize catastrophe happening outside of the United States. But regardless, to an extent, that isn't a bad thing. You know, everyone has to prioritize resources for themselves and their immediate relationships. But it does bring up some moral questions. It makes me think about the ethical implications of the trolley problem which is a thought experiment designed to make us question the morality of our actions. So in this thought experiment, there is a trolley that is going down a track where five people are tied up and unable to move. And you're standing next to a lever, 
and you can switch the track so that the trolley would avoid those people. But on the other track that you would be switching it to, there is one person who is unable to move. The utilitarian solution to this question is that the morally sound action to take would be to switch the track and save the lives of the most people. But the second iteration of this experiment is when the person on the other track is a loved one, maybe, maybe your mom or your brother. It's a much harder question when you have to find the duality between community ethics and the emotions that go along with your personal relationships. This thought experiment also puts you in direct control of the outcome and creates a personal impact. With situations like COVID, especially for Gen Z, we aren't always being impacted by our actions. If we don't see people around us being negatively affected by the virus or, or climate change, it's hard to actualize the severity of those situations and maintain focus. The regulations require us to change our actions, but we aren't being shown why that's necessary. Hmm. Another piece of this that I feel like we have yet to talk about is the politicization of both of these issues, both uh, the pandemic and climate change. In American politics, at least, this is done principally by the right wing. Um, but when you have major politicians or how the, the president of the United States insist that COVID-19 or climate change isn't a serious threat, that discourse really impacts people. I mean, people now view the, the need to wear masks or the need to take sweeping action to reduce global emissions uh, as a political opinion, but it isn't. A person's lay opinion does not get to hold the same weight as scientific fact. When the issue is framed as a debate between the two sides, the impression is given that all the perspectives are equally valid. That just isn't true. This is a really detrimental impact on public health. I mean, it means that climate scientists focus their attention on convincing people that their research is real instead of moving forward with a real solution. Right. By taking issues that everyone could be aligned on and making them political, we end up with a gridlock that prohibits us from instituting policy that would be universally beneficial. If we weren't so polarized and focused on remaining partisan, we could pass legislation that would legitimately address these issues and help people instead of just talking about it. The division has gone so far that we can no longer agree on the most basic elements of the issue, things that should be indisputable fact, like climate change being real, or, or people dying from COVID being bad, are being disputed. Imagine these issues like a tree. It's natural to have different branches extending in, in different directions, as people will have different opinions on the right way to address an issue. But if the tree is split so deeply that, that its roots are divided, then it can't grow. If we're unable to agree that there is even an issue, we get stuck before we can debate solutions. And that's problematic, especially in terms of legislation, and how corporations are viewing the situation at hand. We've been talking a lot about personal responsibility in terms of these issues, but it's important to stipulate that without fundamental change in the way corporations operate and governments regulate, we won't see the necessary changes take place. At the end of the day, governments, corporations, and those in power hold a lot more responsibility than we do for the destruction of our planet and the failure to combat public health crises. You're right. And that's why I hope so deeply that this moment can be one of reckoning. I had a friend ask me the other day, like, do you think this is the beginning of the end of the world? And I don't, but this is a wake-up call. Racial issues are coming to a head in a new way. Public health is, is viewed entirely differently after hundreds of thousands of global deaths. I mean, we are still in the fight of our life for the security and future of our planet. Like, 
Izzy, we live a very privileged life, and, and we surround ourselves with people who also are very privileged. We cannot afford to ignore any of these things just because they don't personally threaten us right now. They will. We have to become more willing to change our actions for the sake of others. We set out to discuss the duality between climate change and COVID-19, and we've explored some, some big similarities and a few key differences that, that make responding to both of them a challenge. But the greater consideration isn't merely a compare and contrast exercise. You know, it's, it's figuring out how we hold space and attention for these things simultaneously. It's looking at what it takes to get us over the line between recognizing an issue and changing our behavior because that issue can no longer be ignored. I hope the message that we can take away is that we need to cross that line a whole lot more often. Next week on Duality, we discuss the American Colossus. Emma Lazarus's poem, inscribed on the Statue of Liberty, has become an anthem surrounding immigration, but it has so much more to say about what it means to be an American. Thanks for listening.